It is good to worship with you today. I'm glad to be here and I'm excited for the text that we are going to dig into together. I want to I want to start off by letting you know that we're going to take a one week break today from our series in Nehemiah. Uh, If this is your first time at church in a few weeks, uh, several weeks ago we started a series in the book of Nehemiah, and typically what you'll find when you come to Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena is you'll find us preaching line by line, chapter by chapter through a book in God's Word. Uh, This this is the way that God's people are best fed and the church is nourished and the Holy Spirit applies God's Word to our life. But today we're going to take a one-week break uh, to dedicate an entire service to something that God has been laying on the heart of the elders for the past several months. The first thing that Ron and Bill asked me to do when I joined the staff of the church last summer was to draw up a proposal, a corporate evangelism proposal. Now, this is nothing new. Churches all the time and everywhere are considering how are we stewarding God's people? Are we, are we being obedient? Are we walking in obedience to the Great Commission? And what's more, do we have a corporate expression of the call to take the gospel to the nations? So when Ron and Bill said, can you please draw up a proposal for evangelism, they weren't thinking, oh, well, evangelism isn't happening at this church, because that's just not the case. Uh, as I started to do my research, and as I started to meet with you people, uh, I, I learned story after story. The, the truth is, is that Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena is a witness in this community in a hundred different ways. Uh, there are stories I heard that filled me with encouragement There are stories I heard from some of you that made me think about my own life, that spurred me on to want to practice personal evangelism more faithfully. So that's not the reason they asked me to draw up a proposal. It's because we feel a conviction that corporately, as a church, we ought to have a group expression of of the, the great mission that our Savior has given to us. Now, Throughout the process of planning and praying and writing this proposal, there was a verse, there's something Jesus said that almost haunted me. Haunted is the wrong word. I know, I know haunting can have kind of a negative connotation, but I trust that you understand what I mean, that the Lord, the Lord had something in the back of my mind, on my heart, that I just couldn't escape from. There's a thought here that I think the Lord continued to bring up to me personally and then in elder meetings. And it's found in Matthew 9, 38, and then again in Luke chapter 10, verse 2. And this is what Jesus said. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, This is a really important therefore. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. My friends, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. If your eyes are open in the L.A. Valley, you see it. The harvest is plentiful. 
the workers are few. Therefore, what? Therefore, get to work. What are you waiting on? Let's get, let's get to it. Pick up your tools. No. That's not what Jesus said. He said, therefore, pray earnestly. And I have been meditating on that thought for months. Tim, would you please create an evangelism proposal? The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Therefore, pray. Pray. You know, we, we initially planned to introduce a new program for corporate evangelism this month in February 2023. But as we discussed this in the early days, right after New Year's, it's like January 2nd or 3rd, we were discussing this and starting to plot it out on the calendar, and it became clear to all of us, this overwhelming sense that the Lord was saying, slow down, slow down. We as elders need to pray before we plan, and we always are. We're always praying, but there's a special moment, I think, right now that God is saying, pray. And what's more, we need to invite you to pray with us. And so that brings us to the message today. And it brings us to the book of Acts. What better place to meditate on the praying church than the book of Acts? I hope you guys are excited. There there are a few books in the Bible that are more exciting than than the book of Acts. And we're about to drop in to a really exciting moment in the book of Acts in chapter 4, starting in verse 23. So if you could please... Turn in your Bibles to Acts 4. We're going to read verses 23 through 31, and then we're going to pray together, and then we'll jump in. Acts 4, 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city, There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Father, our desire is that we would speak the word of God with boldness. Our desire is that we would be salt and light to this community in Pasadena. But if we're going to do that, we have to pause 
and pray because we cannot do it in our own strength. Lord, would you come send your Holy Spirit today and do a work in your people and call us to our knees to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers. In Jesus' name, amen. Just prior to our text in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John were going to the temple, and they saw a man being carried into the temple who had been lame from birth. The scripture tells us that this man was more than 40 years old, and he had been lame from birth. And the man is asking for money, for support. He can't work to support himself, so he needs money. And Peter looks at him and says, money I do not have, but what I have I give to you. And Peter, in the name of Jesus, heals this man. He reaches out his hand, reaches out his hand, takes him by the hand, lifts him up, and he's walking. He's jumping and dancing and shouting and praising God. And he's making such a ruckus that a crowd gathers around. Now, this guy had come to the temple so often, so often to beg support, that the people there, they knew him. And so they hear the the jumping and the shouting and the praising, and they come and they say, what has happened? A great miracle has happened. The miracle creates a commotion, and Peter uses that moment, like Peter always does in the book of Acts, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what happens? The church explodes in growth. We know that After Pentecost, Peter preached, and about 3,000 people came into the church, came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, at this moment, the first major event after the day of Pentecost, the Bible tells us that the church grew to 5,000 men. So when you read the Bible commentaries and you read people who study the size of families back in those days, the church was probably at this point, just weeks after Pentecost, hitting around 15,000 members in the city of Jerusalem. Okay, this thing is spreading like wildfire, but something happens. There's a commotion, Peter preaches, the Holy Spirit falls, people are repenting of their sins and coming to Christ, and then the rulers come in, the high priest, the elders, the chief priests, they come in and they say, what is going on here? We, t- we thought we told you not to preach in the name of Jesus. And so Peter and John are arrested, and they're warned. They're commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they're threatened. Now, we can't rush past this threat. Okay, just weeks before, these are the same people who just crucified our Lord. Okay, what do you think the content of these threats were? Okay, they were threatened at minimum. They're being threatened with prison. Okay, but probably they're being threatened with death. And these are credible threats. So Peter and John leave this council in the beginning of chapter 4. They leave the council. They've just been threatened likely with death, and they return to the church. That's where our text picks up. Now, our text is a very rich passage of Scripture, and we do not have time today to cover every every piece of gold that the Lord has in this passage. So please go study it beyond this sermon But there's one simple truth that I believe the the passage gives to us that I want to focus on today. A simple truth involving the place of prayer in the life of the church. And this is it. Prayer is the indispensable means by which we accomplish our God-given mission. Prayer is the indispensable 
means. I believe the text bears this out in a very compelling way. Now, we have five points this afternoon, which, Lord willing, we will move through fairly quickly. Don't want to keep you all day. Five points. Point number one, devoted to prayer. It's in verses 23 and 24. Point number two, the necessity of prayer. Verse 24. Point number three, the roots of prayer in verses 25 to 28. Point number four, the heartbeat of prayer, verses 29 and 30. And then finally, God's answer to prayer in verse 31. So let's jump right into point number one. Look at verse 23 in the first half of 24. So just as you would suspect, Peter and John, they returned to the church. They returned to their friends. And they reported what the chief priests had said. Guys, they're not dropping it. They killed Jesus, but Jesus' resurrection hasn't convinced them that they're in the wrong. And now they're going to start persecuting us too. Now they're threatening us with prison and death. This is what they have to report. This is bad news. And what does the church do? When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. They lifted their voices together to God. First, I... I want to draw your attention to a similarity in this text to the text in Nehemiah we've been meditating on together the last couple of weeks. Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah hears bad news about God's people in Jerusalem, and what is the first thing that Nehemiah does? He falls to his knees to pray. The church in Acts in Jerusalem hears bad news from the ruling elders of the people of Israel that they're going to continue persecuting the church. And what is the first thing that the church in Jerusalem does when they hear this news? They fall to their knees and pray. Friends, when God's people hear bad news, they do something. They they pray. They fall to their knees and pray. Now, the second thing I want you to notice broaden our scope a little bit from this one text in chapter 4, is that this is not an isolated incident for the church in Acts. This is not unusual for the church in Acts. The prayer, this prayer didn't pop up as a new idea in response to persecution. Now, I'm going to take you very quickly through a few verses in the book of Acts, because I think as we listen, the cumulative effect of these verses is going to have an effect on our soul Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, okay? This is after the ascension of Jesus, but before the day of Pentecost. And what are they doing? What are Jesus' followers doing in this moment? All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. That's what the church was doing after Jesus went back to the Father, but before the Holy Spirit was poured out at the day of Pentecost. Acts 2.42, immediately after Pentecost, first church service ever. Acts 2.42 tells us what they were all about. What were they about? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The first church ever was devoted to a small handful of things, and one of them was prayer. Acts 6, chapter 4, one of the first controversies in the church in Jerusalem, okay? The Hellenistic widows and the Jewish widows are being treated differently. 
Things aren't fair. The, the widows can't support themselves in this society, and so they need financial support, but the church isn't sharing out the resources evenly. They come to the apostles. The apostles say, we have to, we have to raise up some other leaders to take care of this. Why? Why can't Peter and James and John hand out the money? It's a worthy thing to do. They can't. This is why. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. That's why. They raise up a whole new group of leaders that we now call deacons that's an office of the church. Why? So the elders can be devoted to prayer. Acts 10 is a turning point in the book of Acts. It's when the gospel first goes to the Gentiles. The first family of the Gentiles that becomes Christian is Cornelius' family. Well, how is Cornelius described? Acts 10.2, Cornelius was a devout man who prayed continually to God. Now, what was Peter doing when the Holy Spirit said, Peter, it's time for the gospel to go to the Gentiles? Acts 10, 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to what? To pray. Acts chapter 12, Peter is back in prison, but the church is praying earnestly for him. And when Peter gets released miraculously from prison, he goes back to his friends. And what are they doing at Mary's house? They're praying. Every time you turn the page, the main characters in the book of Acts are stumbling into a prayer meeting. That is because the church was always praying in the book of Acts. This was not incidental to the corporate life of the church. This is what they were always doing. Prayer is a distinguishing mark of the church then, and it is a distinguishing mark of the church today. Look at the language in these texts. Devoted, 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 continually, earnest. Folks, it's like Luke is trying to tell us something. This is the language you use when you want someone to perk up and listen Prayer is on a very short list of the essential, non-negotiable priorities of the church. And that is point number one. The church in Acts is devoted to prayer. Prayer was functioning for them in a way that it doesn't always function in my life. That something had gripped their heart with the necessity and the priority of prayer. What was it? I believe the content of this prayer is going to reveal something about how prayer ought to work in our lives. Something in this prayer shows us why the church in Acts was so passionately committed to it. And that brings us to point number two, the necessity of prayer. Look at the second half of verse 24. This is the first line of their prayer. This is how they address their heavenly father. Sovereign Lord. Stop there. This is not the normal word for sovereign in the Greek New Testament. This is a strong word. Okay, this is Master, capital M. John Stott describes this word as a ruler of unchallengeable power. This, this is the first word they use when the council starts to threaten them. Oh, ruler of unchallengeable power, someone is threatening us. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, 
Now, I don't know about you. I don't always start my prayer with the doctrine of creation. I just don't. Well, what are they up to here? Why affirm the attributes of God to him as you begin your prayer? Well, I believe what they are doing is they are orienting themselves under the mighty hand of God, and they are highlighting the necessity of prayer. When you say God is creator, what do you imply about yourself? If God is the creator of heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, then what are you and what am I? We are creatures, okay? This is what they were affirming. This is a corporate confession of God's power and our weakness and dependency upon him. You see, by definition, as creatures, we are fundamentally, through no fault of your own, you are fundamentally dependent upon your creator. Now, among human relationships, dependence is often talked of as a bad thing. Okay, we often talk about dependence in terms of unhealthy emotional codependence. Okay, and that would be a bad thing. When we look to someone else to meet the needs that only God can meet in our lives, that is a very bad thing. Those expectations crush that other person and leave us incredibly dissatisfied. But when it comes to our relationship with our Creator, dependence is the air that we breathe. Dependence is the good, right, healthy relationship that we ought to have. And in our relationship with our Creator, it's independence that becomes sinfully prideful. Do you see that? When they begin their prayer, they're positioning themselves in the universe. They're saying, you are the Creator, the Sovereign Lord. We are creatures, so we must ask for your help. You, Father, are completely independent and self-sufficient. We are contingent and needy. Apart from you, no human plan or effort can succeed long-term. But with you, we cannot fail. Do you begin to see the absolute necessity of prayer, my friends? Prayer is the purest expression. It's the shape that faith takes when we come to understand that we are weak and dependent and God is immeasurably powerful. Prayer is the purest expression of our need and our faith in one event. Do you see that? The, the believers in Jew Jerusalem are saying at the beginning of this prayer, we must pray. We have no power before the council in Jerusalem, but you have all the power. Point number three, the roots of their prayer in verses 25 to 28. They start their prayer by affirming who God is and who they are. God is sovereign creator. They are creatures. They need to look to him for help. How do they continue their prayer? Look at verse 25. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Verse 25. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And then they're going to go on to quote the first two verses of Psalm chapter 2. The basis of this prayer, the soil from which this prayer grew out of their hearts, was Scripture. It was Psalm chapter 2. Let's look at Psalm chapter 2 together. 
But before you turn there, I want you to put yourself in their shoes. I want you to imagine that you are there in Jerusalem and you've just learned You've just learned that the the religion that you've just given your life to, the God that you've just realized powerfully is the God of all the universe and that he sent his only son to die on the cross for you, that he was risen on the third day. This, the the Jerusalem council has said, if you believe in this God, if you preach in this name, you're going to go to jail and you're going to die. Okay, with that in mind, I want you to read Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What does that do for a fearful heart? It's not God's people who need to be afraid. It's the kings and rulers who have set themselves against the Lord's anointed. Be wise. Be careful how you use your power, political rulers of the earth. If you set yourself against the sun, he will break you with a rod of iron. Do you see how scripture bolsters their prayer? Do you you see how Psalm 2 takes a prayer that might have been a prayer? If I were in their situation, what would I be praying for? What would you be praying for? I'll tell you. I don't have to guess. I would be praying for my own safety. I would be praying. Maybe I would read Psalm 2 and I would say, It's time to break them, Lord. Break them with a rod of iron. I'm scared. Okay? Psalm 2 takes a fearful heart and produces a prayer for boldness. Psalm 2 said, what if that is what's going down, if that's what God is doing through his anointed son, Jesus, then I don't want to run away and hide. I want boldness. I want to be a part of this. Lord, Give me the boldness I need to stand up and be a part of what you're doing on the earth. This is how scripture is meant to function in our prayers. It's meant to guide and inform and shape and teach us how to pray and to build our faith that God will, in fact, answer. When we pray in light of God's word, 
our prayers come into alignment with God's heart and his purposes for our lives and for the world around us. We want our prayers to have roots, to have roots like this prayer did. So, so far in this prayer, the church in Jerusalem has, one, affirmed God's sovereignty. They've affirmed that God is the transcendent, powerful creator. And then they've appealed to Psalm 2. But they haven't even gotten to their request yet. Did you notice that? Okay, they're kind of taking a long time. It's like three-fourths of the prayer is affirming things that God already knows about himself and affirming things that God wrote in his own word. What's the deal with that? Have you ever wondered these prayer guides that we use sometimes? One of, the, one of, the, one of my favorites is the ACTS, ACTS, okay? Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. Have you ever gotten a little impatient in the ACT part? Okay, you're like, okay, I got to, okay, adoration. What, okay, let me think of an attribute. I don't know how this attribute comes to bear on what I really need help with today, but I'm going to think of something, and now I got to think of a way that I've sinned against him, and I've got to confess that. What are we doing? What are we doing? What are they doing here in Acts chapter 4, the church in Jerusalem, spending all their time preparing the ground before they give, before they make their request? What they're doing is properly orienting themselves toward their creator so that they don't rush into the room and demand something of the almighty God. Someone said recently, and it may have been Ron in a recent sermon, but have you noticed that it matters how your kid asks you for something? Those of you who aren't parents, if you've been a kid, so you know this intuitively, that the way you ask your parent, especially if you're making a big ask, is important. You're going to prepare yourself for that, okay? If you barge into the room and say, Mom, make dinner for me, I'll tell you what's not coming, dinner, <laughs> okay? The church in Acts, they are going to the God of the universe. They are orienting their heart appropriately to ask for his help. And as they do that, they are, their faith in God is growing so that they can make a big request. Make us bold, Lord. Make us bold. But what, in fact, do they ask for after they prepare their heart? That brings us to point number four, the heartbeat of prayer. Let's look at verses 29 and 30. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue speaking your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So there's two, there are two main aspects of the request here. They ask for two things and they say, we want these two things while you continue to do the powerful things that you're doing in and around the church. So Lord, we see that you are pouring out your power for signs and wonders, for healing, and may it continue, Lord. But here's the request for us. We want you, Lord, to look upon their threats and give us boldness where lord may we pray like this where does this request come from what's their reference point what led the church to say we might die we might get thrown in prison we ask that you'll help us to preach jesus name even louder lord where did that come from 
Context is important. We have to remember, we're just weeks after the ascension here. This request comes from the last words of Jesus. This church has a sense of their mission. They know what their Lord has called them to do, and that is informing their prayers. Flip over just a page or two to Acts 1, verse 6. Acts 1, 6 through 8. This is the last conversation with Jesus on earth. So when they had come together, they asked him, Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is a great question. Lord, when are we going to defeat the enemies? When do we win? Are you going to restore the kingdom now to Israel? Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So they had a question, when when is the end coming? When are you going to come back and rule and reign and fully establish your kingdom? And Jesus said, that's coming one day, but your concern is not the day or the hour. There's one thing that is your concern. In the period of time between Jesus' ascension, his first coming, and his second coming, there is one thing that he has given the church to be about, and it is to be his witnesses in all the earth. Jesus has given a mission to the church. That colors how we view this scene in Acts chapter 4. Someone is trying, someone with political power and might is trying to stop the church from doing the mission that Jesus gave the church to do. Jesus said, be my witnesses. The Jerusalem council said, stop talking in the name of Jesus. Don't talk about him anymore. Does their prayer make sense now? He said, Lord, look on their threats and give us boldness. Let's pause here just for a moment and talk briefly about the Holy Spirit. You see, in Acts 1, 8, Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses when the Spirit comes. You'll receive power from the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I know, church family, I know that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit can be abused It can be misunderstood in ways that harm the church and misrepresent God. But we must not, we must not let the abuses cause us to miss the vital, life-giving role of the Holy Spirit. We must not let the abuses, the pendulum can't swing so far the other way, running from the controversy and the misapplication of, of texts on the Holy Spirit. If the pendulum swings so far the other way that we start to downplay the role of the third person of the Trinity, especially the Holy Spirit, we, we must not do that. The church family, the Holy Spirit plays the decisive role in every aspect of your walk with God. How, how in tune 
with that reality are we this afternoon. The decisive role, this is a big claim. The Holy Spirit plays the decisive role in every aspect of your walk with God and my walk with God. So you want to talk about communion with God, communing with your Father in heaven. That is facilitated by the Holy Spirit. Look at Romans 5.5. Who pours God's love in your heart? The Holy Spirit. The ability, the, the, the awareness that God is our Father, the actual experiential awareness that you have been adopted into the family of God and you can approach Him as a Father who loves you. How does that come about in someone's heart and life? Well, Romans 8 tells us that's by the Holy Spirit. Comfort that we receive from God. Knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. Well, John chapter 16 tells us that comes from the Holy Spirit. Communion with God. Communion with God is is an aspect of the Holy Spirit's role in your life. Let's talk about reading God's Word and understanding God's Word. Well, 1 Corinthians 2 10 through 12, tells us that you can't understand God's word apart from the Holy Spirit. The words are spiritual words, and they're discerned by people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. How about growing in holiness and sanctification? You know, striving to obey Christ's commands and to grow in holiness. Well, Romans 8, 13 says that you only put to death your sins by the power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 says the spirit is against the flesh and the flesh is against the spirit. But if you walk by the spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. How do we grow in holiness? Holy Spirit. Edifying and building up the church. How do you guys come here and encourage one another and help to build this church together? Well, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, three whole chapters of one of the longest letters in the New Testament tells you, well, that's by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You build up the church because the Holy Spirit has fit you to do so. And evangelism. We just read Acts 1.8. How about John chapter 3? Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you have to be born again to enter the, the kingdom of God. Well, how do you do that? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit blows where it will. The Holy Spirit brings you to new spiritual life. And that's how you enter the kingdom of God. F.F. Bruce has this to say about the book of Acts. The book of Acts demonstrates a pervasive emphasis on the dominant role of the Holy Spirit in the expansion of the gospel. Should I say that again? Dominant role of the Holy Spirit in the expansion of the gospel. The Christian community is spirit-filled and spirit-led, so much so that its voice is the voice of the Spirit, and the whole evangelistic enterprise from Jerusalem to Rome to Pasadena is directed by the Spirit. Every time we pray, whether we know it or not, what we're praying for is for God to send the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the member of the Trinity that applies the finished work of Christ to our lives and to this world in every way. When the church in Acts prayed for boldness in chapter 4, God responded how? He responded by sending the Spirit. And that brings us to our final point. God's answer. Let's look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit 
and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They were, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Have you ever found that phrase, phrasing in Acts and the rest of the New Testament to be a little bit confusing? It's like, wait, Pentecost happened a couple chapters ago in Acts 2. They, they were already filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter and John are at this prayer meeting, but Peter also led the prayer meeting in Acts 2. Did they not get filled enough? Is this just like a topping off? How are we to understand this language? These people were already Christians, and yet the Scripture talks about them being filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. I want to clarify, if, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord this afternoon, if you have placed your faith and hope in Him, you're following Him with your heart and life, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There is no second-class Christianity. There's not, these Christians are super filled with the Spirit, and you guys are just a little bit, you know, B-level. There's no such thing as that. Every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And yet, the Bible speaks of a continual filling of the Spirit that happens. Doesn't your own experience teach you that you and I were meant to be continually renewed by the strength of God? That doesn't your own experience in day-to-day life teach you that we are not capable of doing the work God has given us to do without being filled continually with God's Spirit? Fresh strength, fresh encouragement, fresh perspective. I want to suggest that this is not a flaw in our design. This is how we were always meant to be. We are meant to walk in constant communion with God by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are not meant to be able to accomplish anything in our own strength. When God's people seek to do God's work, they must be filled with God's Spirit, and therefore God Himself receives all the glory for everything that's accomplished. This is the Christian life. This is the air we breathe. Folks, God... God has given the church a mission to do. And we can't run straight into the work. We're supposed to pray first. And the reason we're supposed to pray is to highlight the fact that we cannot do it in our own strength. We need to stop and ask the Lord to fill us again and again and again with his powerful spirit to do the work that he has given us to do. It's no accident that the Bible frequently combines teaching on prayer with teaching on the Holy Spirit. Do you see the connection between them? There is an intimate relationship between prayer and the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 12 to 17 gives us a glimpse of profound death, depth here. It's the Spirit himself who teaches us how to pray. And when we don't know what to pray for, the Spirit intercedes for us in words we can't understand. The Spirit communicates with our spirit, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. And we are meant to seek Him. We have a role to play. And prayer is the clearest, most pure expression of that seeking. Sincere prayer is a confession of our inability to accomplish anything in our own strength. 
We're saying every time we pray with a sincere heart, anytime we're not praying just to perform in front of others, we're saying, Lord, I cannot do it. I have to stop and ask your help. And God delights to respond by sending his spirit. The worship team can come on up. I just have two points of application for you to consider this afternoon. They're obvious. The whole sermon has been about prayer. (laughs) There's a real easy application for this sermon. First, would you continue? I don't say start, because I know you are praying for Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena. You are a praying people already. So I want to invite you to continue praying for Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena. Specifically, can I hold up some categories for your prayer? As Ron prayed in the pastoral prayer earlier today, would you pray for wisdom as we search for a location that will allow us to meet on Sunday mornings? Would you pray for the edification and building up of the church? Friends, we do not want to go through the motions of church. That is maybe the worst thing I can imagine spending our lives doing. We want the real thing, but the real thing only happens when the Holy Spirit shows up. Would you pray for that? Would you pray for the mission? Would you pray what Jesus told, taught us to pray, that God would send workers into his harvest field? Isn't it good that Jesus didn't, just didn't say, get to work? That Jesus said, pray. There's few workers, and the answer to that is pray. Pray that God would make each of us workers in the harvest field. And if you are feeling bold, would you pray that God would fill you and me with the Holy Spirit? Be careful. He'll answer, and it'll send your life in a direction That will be wonderful and scary and good. Second, would you prayerfully consider joining our new prayer team? It's on the elders' hearts to have a corporate expression of prayer. We're going to start a small prayer team that we hope will meet semi-regularly. This is not something that we want to overburden your calendar with, but In light of God's word, in light of the example of the book of Acts, prayer, corporate prayer, is not incidental to the life of the church. It is a hallmark of the life of the church. Would that someone could watch us at Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena and walk away saying, man, you know, they're great people, but they just pray a lot. Like, can't escape it. They're just always having another prayer meeting. I know it's happening already. I know you could walk into one of your homes during community group and find us praying. We want to start a prayer team that's going to be uniquely focused on the mission of the church. We want to invite the Lord to move in power and prepare us for the things he has in the coming months. God has chosen specially to bless corporate prayer where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am with them. Oh, and we want to benefit from that blessing. If you are interested, I want to invite you to talk to me after the service, send me an email, call me, text me. I don't care how you get a hold of me. 
If you're interested in joining the prayer team, and, and specifically, if the Lord has put it on your heart, if your heart is stirred to pray, to be a part of this prayer team, I believe the Lord will put a burden on the hearts of those he's calling to do this. I think, I trust that it's even happening already now. So if God has put that on your heart, I pray that you would reach out to me in the next week or so. We want to rededicate ourselves to the mission God has given to us. First step is prayer. As I said at the beginning, prayer is the indispensable means by which we accomplish the mission. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this time together this afternoon. And we are also conscious of the fact from your word today that we cannot make any of this happen in our own strength. We can't even have a right desire to pray in our own strength. It's all a work of your spirit. So would you come, Lord? Would you come? Stir us up. Those, those of us who you would have join this new prayer team, would you stir up our hearts? Would you put a holy burden and a fire in our soul to pray for the mission of God in the city of Pasadena? Please do that in us, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.